you know, our Apple Watch is going to be telling us that we're going to die soon, and uh, hope not. <laughs> Okay, so welcome back to our second episode of Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and I'm joined by Austin Rupp. How's it going, Austin? It's going well. I see that the fame and fortune of podcasting uh, has lured you back in for another installment of Last Week in Medicine. Glad to see you here. Couldn't stay away. (laughs) How was your weekend? My weekend was good. I went skiing last week. um, Where'd you go skiing? Alta. They have snow up there? some wow. not enough but anyway it's it was good um weather's been good great yeah yeah I went, escalante yeah i went down to the grand staircase escalante <laughs> national monument nice did some slot canyons with the kids they love that stuff it's great down there what's not the love the weather was amazing it was a fantastic november day speaking of which it's november 18th today and uh, this is, uh, yeah, like I said, it's our second episode. Last week was our first ever episode, and I definitely learned some things um, in, in doing that. Uh, I do this really annoying upspeak thing. Hmm. <laughs> which I probably <laughs> picked that. up from listening to NPR and some other podcasts, but I'm going to work on that. Uh, so this podcast is all about helping you stay up to date on the latest and most relevant medical literature. Each week we will share our favorite papers from the previous week, recognizing that there's no way we could possibly cover it all. But hopefully you can spend 15 to 20 minutes and feel like you learned something new and useful. Uh, We should probably also put in a disclaimer that this is for educational purposes only and the topics we discuss should not be solely used to diagnose or treat any diseases. Uh, Everything we discuss is based on journal articles and our work experience, but will contain a significant amount of our opinions. Significant. <laughs> Additionally, <laughs> an additional disclaimer should probably be that we are not statisticians or really that well versed in critical examination of the literature, but we're hopeful that this will be a growing experience for all those involved. Man, you're really throwing us under the bus. <laughs> Self deprecation. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, this week there was an American Heart Association meeting, so there's a lot of cardiology stuff out there getting published, and I think we both picked uh, some papers on cardiology topics. So I wanted to start us off with the Apple Heart Study. This got a lot of uh, buzz in the Twitter sphere. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, This paper uh, is from Dr. Marco V. Perez and his colleagues, and it was published in the New York, or sorry, the New England Journal of Medicine. It's titled, Large-Scale Assessment of a Smartwatch to Identify Atrial Fibrillation. It's also called the Apple Heart Study. It was funded by Apple, and they own all the data. And the goal was to test their algorithm for picking up atrial fibrillation in people who wear the Apple Watch. Do you have an Apple Watch, Austin? I do have an Apple Watch, Stephen. One time while eating crawfish, it said my heart rate was 195. So wow, I would have gotten the irregular pulse notification more than likely (laughs) would you recommend getting a smartwatch to our listeners uh it's it's beneficial it's nice to screen your texts okay you know that way (laughs) i should note that this podcast receives no compensation from anyone including apple but we're kind of both apple guys yeah i mean i have a macbook yeah yeah okay anyway that was not a plug for apple (laughs) uh i don't like that i'm an apple guy let's 
oh, put that out wow. there. So they kind of run our lives, More right? self-hate. Anyway, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> Moving forward. So what's remarkable about this study is they were able to enroll 419,000 people, Woo. and there was no physical clinic. So basically, Apple released an app that people could download on their smartphones and watches to enroll in the trial. This did lead to some problems because one of the exclusion criteria for the trial was prior diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or oral anticoagulation use, and a lot of people with AFib ignored that and enrolled in the study anyway. Uh, most of the enrollees were also very young, like 52% were under the age of 40, which makes sense because those are the people that buy Apple products, and only 6% were 65 and older, so that's probably not ideal for you know studying atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. But out of the 419,000 p- patients who enrolled, uh, 2,161 of them, or 0.52%, got an alert on their smartwatch that they had an irregular pulse. And when they got this alert, they were prompted to initiate a telemedicine visit directly from the app. If they had urgent symptoms, they were instructed to go to an emergency department. And once the telemedicine physician verified their eligibility, the patients were mailed an ECG patch that they were supposed to wear for seven days and then returned to Apple. If any serious arrhythmias were detected, they were instructed to seek urgent medical attention. So the two primary outcomes that they were looking at were atrial fibrillation detected on an ECG patch monitor and uh, simultaneous AFib on ECG patch during intervals when the participant also had irregular tachycardia detected on their smartwatch. So out of the 2,161 people who got alerts, 1,216 of them failed to initiate the visit. Shocking. Yeah. So people are like, oh, I have an irregular pulse alert. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's probably just the crayfish. <laughs> they were playing Fortnite while it occurred, so, uh, you know, yeah. to be expected. Maybe, yeah. So of those who did respond, 20 of them had urgent symptoms that required immediate attention, so they were not sent an ECG patch. So 18 of those had AFib with RVR with rates over 200. Whoa. So that's cool. One had a six-second pause, and one had about six seconds of non-sustained VTAC, which would not make me that excited, but... Uh, 174 had previous AFib, and 90 were on oral anticoagulation, so they had to be excluded. <laughs> so those jokers were yeah. just like, I don't whatever. Why am I taking warfarin? I... <laughs> yeah, that's true. To be fair, a lot of people don't <laughs> yeah. know why they're taking warfarin. So 658 people had the patch mailed to them, um, but many of those had to be excluded because they did not return their patch, did not wear it within 14 days of receiving it, or returned it more than 45 days after their first visit. So I think what this study showed was it's really hard, actually, to do a study remotely because people are inherently flaky and don't follow through. So very high dropout rates. Ultimately, though, they did get 450 people to return their patch to be analyzed. Um, And out of those 450 people who returned their patches, 34% of them ended up being diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. So the diagnostic yield was higher in patients who were over 65, which makes sense. Um, since they're more likely to have it. And then of those who had atrial fibrillation, 20% of them had continuous AFib, um, and it, and most of them had it uh, less than 50% of the time they were monitored. Um, there were 86 people who had irregular pulse notifications while they were wearing an ECG patch, and 84% of them had AFib on their ECG patch at that time. So they took this to mean that the algorithm was pretty accurate. Yeah, I think um, very interesting study, huh? Um, 
the highlights for me were that it was, you know, quote unquote, pragmatic, which you've absolutely hinted at um, multiple times. You know, there was no clinic site and it was really sort of patient dependent. So while this is not um, great for a study, you know, that's that's trying to show compelling data, it is um, something that you know, can potentially be clinically relevant and implemented fairly fairly easily. So I thought that was notable. Um, and then I also thought it was notable that the notification subgroup, the folks who got the irregular pulse notification, were more likely to report subsequent strokes, myocardial infarctions, and heart failure. So, um, but you know, these this I think there's a huge potential here. There's, this is an area for ongoing study, and um, you know, I think that the tech um, is incredible and probably very much underutilized by the medical community and that this paper um, is sort of compelling for that idea. Yeah, shows that there is, there's room out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do point out their algorithm was not designed to detect short episodes of AFib. So, you know, it's possible that people were missed who actually did have paroxysmal or infrequent atrial fibrillation. And so, uh, you know, they also point out that their goal was not to test whether the smartwatch could be used as a population screening tool and that just because you never got a notification of a regular pulse doesn't mean that you are technically in the clear. Like, they could have missed stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question I have is, like, what is Apple going to do with all this data now that they own? Um, you know, are they, how do they make sure that they keep it private? Because obviously, you know, the big tech companies don't have a great track record for keeping people's, you know, data, in, you know, private. So, you know, we just heard last week that Google... Uh, has been collaborating with Ascension Health, which is the second largest health system in the United States, for over a year and didn't tell anybody. And they have access to 50 million patients' healthcare data. So obviously that raises all sorts of concerns about privacy since, you know, like I said, they don't have the best record on protecting data. Um, But I do think that it's inevitable that those companies are going to move into the healthcare sphere because it's like you know, three and a half trillion dollars <laughs> a year that it gets spent. So, so yeah, I think uh, this was an interesting proof of concept that you, you you can do some population stuff, and we'll see where they go next. Agreed. Okay, so um, the article I'd like to discuss was called "Efficacy and Safety of Low Dose Colchicine After After Myocardial Infarction," um, aka the Colchicine Cardiovascular Outcomes Trial or Colcot. Um, this was by Tardif and his colleagues and is hot off the press from Canada, eh? Sorry, I had to. So um, it was published online on November 14, 2019 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it looks at low-dose colchicine within 30 days of a myocardial infarction and whether it reduced cardiovascular events. The study was a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial. That's a good thing, right, Stephen? I think that's, yeah. I think that's good. The gold standard. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, a prospective study? <laughs> yeah. So, um, patients were assigned in a one to one fashion to receive 0.5 milligrams of colchicine daily or placebo. The trial population included adults who had an MI within the previous 30 days, had completed any planned PCI, and were treated according to optimal medical therapy. Um, So I think that's important to mention. Um, Exclusion criteria included basically all major comorbidities except diabetes and hypertension. Um, They're listed in the article, but, you know, it was cirrhosis, CKD, hematologic abnormalities, et cetera. So I think that's um, something to mention. Um, In total, 4,745 patients were randomized, so 
excuse me, 2,366 got colchicine, 2,379 got placebo, and they were followed for a median of 22.6 months. Um, of note, 93% underwent PCI for their index myocardial infarction, and over 97% of the patients were on aspirin, an additional antiplatelet agent, and a statin. Um, intention to treat analysis was done, and the primary endpoint was a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, resuscitated cardiac arrest, myocardial infarction, stroke, or urgent hospitalization for angina requiring PCI in a time-to-event analysis. Um, sort of as an aside and, and with the disclaimer in mind previously, time-to-event analysis is different than traditional statistical methods and involves sort of different techniques and censoring methods that um, are sort of beyond our scope but, but worth mentioning. <laughs> um, anyway, the secondary um, efficacy endpoint consisted of a composite of the primary endpoint minus the hospitalization bit and plus total mortality from any cause. Keep that in mind. Um, because the differences were a little bit tough to follow, but as far as I can tell, the secondary endpoint included all-cause mortality and did not have the urgent hospitalization for angina, and uh, that is, again, sort of notable down the line. So the findings were that the colchicine arm had fewer primary endpoint events, so 5.5% of patients in the placebo arm had, had the primary endpoint versus 7.1%, excuse me, 5.5% in colchicine, 7.1% um, in the placebo arm, which... Um, had a hazard ratio of 0.77. The secondary efficacy endpoint occurred in 4.7% of the patients in the colchicine group and 5.5% of those in the placebo group, which was not statistically, not statistically significant. Um, adverse events between colchicine and placebo were not statistically different except for nausea, infections, and pneumonia, which occurred more in the colchicine group, but um, at pretty low numbers, really, 1.8% versus one. 1% for nausea, 2.2 versus 1.6 for infections, and 0.9 versus 0.4% uh, for pneumonia. So I don't know if that's really clinically significant. Um, and there was a little bit about CRP and WBC levels in the article, but um, I don't think that that, was, that wasn't important as for me. Um, so overall, the colchicine arm had less primary events, which was largely driven by less strokes and less hospitalizations for angina. Um, as sort of a background, which maybe I should have mentioned first, there's been more interest in this arena recently. Um, several other trials have looked at this. There was a much smaller colchicine trial, Lodoco. And then um, there was also a trial that looked at um, canakizumab, which is a potent anti-inflammatory, the thought being that inflammation leads to cardiovascular events and that reducing that uh, could reduce cardiovascular events. So. Um, you know, I think my takeaways were that this was a, you know, relatively large trial. It was, as we said, randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled, and, um, you know, well-designed as far as I could tell. Uh, major comorbidities were excluded, which is, is pertinent for us, um, you know, and overall there were less primary outcomes, minimally more adverse events with colchicine, and um, I don't know if this is like practice changing necessarily, but worth noting. And, um, you know, down down the line, we might be seeing more colchicine, more colchicine in a post-MI mm. situation. Yeah, I agree. Like, it seemed like, you know, a very huge majority of the patients, like 98, 99% were already on aspirin, another antiplatelet statin. So they were getting good treatment. Most of them had had a PCI. And so what does the colchicine add on top of that? I don't really know. You know, like the 
the, like you said, the major outcome was driven mostly by reduction in stroke and hospitalizations for angina. And so there really wasn't an effect on death from cardiovascular cause or MI. So I don't know if it's really worth the extra medication. Um, I was surprised that diarrhea wasn't a bigger problem because that's like definitely something you'd see in gout patients, but maybe that's just because you're giving them a higher dose of colchicine. Um, and it made me think too about like what this, yeah, like what this would cost patients. You know, colchicine used to be pretty cheap until like some pharmaceutical company took advantage of the Hatch-Waxman Act and decided to rebrand it as Colchris. And so that was like pretty expensive for a while. I don't really know what it costs now. Um, but also, like, the dose we use in America is 0.6 milligrams, and they use 0.5. I don't know if that really makes a difference, but it seems like I would probably still limit my colchicine use to, like, post-amide pericarditis or something like that. But we'll see. More stuff could come out. Yeah, yeah, those are good points. You know, the the cost question is always one that trials don't really take into account, huh? Aspirin's so cheap. <laughs> so... uh no, that's a cool article, though. Um, I think, uh, so I just, wow, it's already 1648. All right. So I just had a couple other, like, honorable mention articles this week that I'll just briefly go over. Um, my first one is, like, this really interesting article in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Dr. Meredith Vanstone and her colleagues, and it's titled The Compassionate End-of-Life Care Mixed Methods Multi-Site Evaluation of the Three Wishes Project. So they started a program in their ICU where staff elicited wishes from dying patients and their families and then tried to fulfill as many of those wishes as possible. Uh, Examples of wishes were to eat their favorite food or beverage, to wear their own clothes, to have their pet visit or to have unlimited visitors, um, to not die alone. And the average cost of each wish was only like $5. And uh, they did extensive interviews with staff, family, and even hospital administrators and concluded that the program was, you know, affordable, sustainable, and provided huge value to dying patients and their families. Like all the different, you know, staff that were involved really uh, enjoyed it and and, and became big advocates for the program. So I I think it sounded cool. Like I'd like to see that at our hospital. Uh, My other honorable mention is an article in circulation by Dr. Sachin J. Shah and and his colleagues entitled Net Clinical Benefit of Oral Anticoagulation Among Older Adults with Atrial Fibrillation. So current guidelines say you should treat patients with AFib over the age of 75 with anticoagulation um, because they have a very high stroke risk. So if you use the CHADS-VAST risk score, you get two points just for being over the age of 75. So these researchers looked at a large cohort of Kaiser Permanente patients in California who are over the age of 75 and have AFib, and they used a simulation model to show that when you account for competing risks of death, like cancer, the net clinical benefit of anticoagulation decreases as they age. So for warfarin, there was a minimal benefit beyond the age of 87 years old, and for apixaban, there was minimal benefit after the age of 92. So basically, the study provided some additional evidence to weigh the pros and cons of continuing anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation in our very old patients. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's all based on simulation models, which is kind of wild. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I will say that I didn't really fully understand how they came to that conclusion, but, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I had a few honorable mentions as well. Um, 
The first was titled Comparative Efficacy of Interventions for Aggressive and Agitated Behaviors in Dementia. This was in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Watt et al. and was a systemic review and network meta-analysis that looked um, at the end of the day at 163 studies in 23,000 patients. Um, they found that non-pharmacologic interventions were more beneficial in reducing aggression and agitation in demented adults, which should not really probably be sort of mind-boggling, but um, serves as a good reminder that standard delirium precautions and, and the like are very beneficial in this situation. Um, additionally, interventions that were specifically mentioned were multidisciplinary care, massage and touch therapy, and music combined with massage and touch therapy. So I think I'm gonna start offering massages to my demented patients. Oh, okay. Yeah. Watch out for that on the wards. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I think it's something that comes up all the time and um, we should try to avoid sort of the late night vitamin H and provide some non-pharmacologic interventions first. Um, the next article that I wanted to mention was called Blood, Blood Culture Results Before and After Antimicrobial Administration in Patients with Severe Manifestations of Sepsis. This was also in Annals and was by Cheng et al. This was actually from September, so forgive me, um, and was also funded by the Canadians. September? <laughs> this is last week I'm in sorry, medicine. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And you, and you brought up the point earlier that we already knew this, and maybe that's the truth. But um, <laughs> this issue gets brought up a lot of, all the time for us. You know, did they get cultures before their antibiotics? Um, the, the paper looked at 325 patients with severe manifestations of sepsis, which was defined as a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or a lactate of greater than 4. And they drew blood cultures before and after antibiotics were given. Um, the second set of cultures was done within 110 minutes with a mean of 70 minutes after antibiotics were given. And um, there was less bacteremia after antibiotics, or the cultures were positive less often after antibiotics. Um, Pre-antibiotic cultures were positive in 31.4% of patients and only 19.4% of patients post-antibiotic um, administration. There was an absolute difference of 12%, and the sensitivity of post-antibiotic blood cultures was only 53%. So um, obtain your blood cultures before antibiotics and follow the surviving sepsis guidelines in this arena, even though there's a lot of conjecture about that. Oh, boy, we just opened a can of worms, right? At <laughs> what the is end. sepsis? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, um, I, I will uh, agree that you should get blood cultures before antibiotics. I think that's non-controversial, but now we have a paper that supports it. Right. Maybe. Maybe. I like simple things, and this was a simple. It was nice. Get, get cultures before you give antibiotics. Duh. So okay. Keep it simple, stupid. All right. Well, we're at 22 minutes, so we've already, you know, failed, but that's okay. Sorry, everyone. Yeah. It's because uh, I talked more this week. Good job, Austin. You're growing. <laughs> it's a journey of growth. All right. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Thank you.